What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Yes. Something amazing's happened. Go on, tell me. I found Jason Furman's phone number. No way. We should ring him and see if we, we can should. buy some dog equipment off him. We've got to put this to rest once and for all. There's so many people harassing me about his website and you. So, yeah, let's ring this idiot. Ring him up. Okay, hang on a sec. It's ringing. I'm excited. Hello. Hey, Jason. Yes, Patricia. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ringing to uh, try and buy some dog equipment off you. Yeah, what do you want? I don't know, some tugs, some leashes, some some of that kind of stuff. Can I do that over the phone? No. Okay. Why let's would you get, do it over the phone? Mate, let's get down to the nitty-gritty in the business here. Have you got a website or not? Of course. What? Yeah, of course. I just didn't want to tell you buggers about it. You're an idiot. <laughs> so <laughs> please tell us, what is your website? It is www.com. Einzweck.com, E-I-N-Z-W-E-C-K.com. You heard it here, folks. Einzweckdogquip.com, where you can buy oh all God, your I dog training equipment. It. Head over there right now, purchase yourself some tugs, leashes. What else do you sell, Jason? Uh, plenty of HS products, uh, mm-hmm. dog pull equipment, fireport mills, anything any normal dog person would want. Wonderful. No head halters. No, no head <laughs> That's it. Hey, Cut Jason. Yes, Glenn. You're still a bullfed. Bye. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Glenn Cook, and joined in studio is my co-host, Pat Stewart. Hello. How are you? I'm all right. What's going on? Oh, lots of stuff, mm. as usual. Oh, yeah. We've got somebody in the studio with us today. We've got a live guest. Yes, we do. We've got Jeff Matchwick joining us today. Hello, everyone. Did Hi. I say your surname properly? Pretty close. Close enough. Say it. Madgwick. Madgwick. Okay. Okay. Not Matchwick. No, no. There's a DG There's in there. There's a DG in there. Okay. <laughs> the reason that Jeff's joining us in the studio today is we are going to do an episode on puppy whelping, raising and training, etc. It's a question that I've been asked quite a few times from people just asking me general questions. Nick Dalton's been hounding me about his puppy and Pat about his puppy mm-hmm. over periods of time. So we've been giving him some hints and help in trying to help him raise his pup. He's one of many people that I get questions about puppies. And the reason that we do is because David, the guy who owns Pet Resorts, he, some time ago, he was buying dogs from people all around the place. And at one point he said to me, you know, look, I'd really like to do this myself. I've got facilities to do it. Mm -hmm. I'd like to look into ultimately breeding my own type of dog, you know, spending time doing it and breeding the type of dog. So not so much as becoming a puppy farm sort of thing, but ultimately looking for his style of dog, the one that he wanted to work with and train. And he said to me, you know, look, would you help me get it up and going and source whatever materials that we need and get things moving from there? So I'd been experimenting with it from time to time over the years before I came to New South Wales in Victoria. I was 
breeding a few Rottweiler litters here and there. So I had a kennel which is still active called Schoenberg. And we were doing, I probably had about six litters of puppies over the years during that time. And for me, it was a massive learning curve on not only how to breed the dogs, like how to make that happen, but learning the periods of development when puppies were whelping right up until the time that we would be placing them in homes. And I learned a shitload about dog behavior just watching a mother with their pups Mm -hmm. and that development during the time i mean there's not a lot happening well there is a lot happening but there's not a lot happening you know like training wise or anything like that up until around about six weeks of age however there is still a lot of development going on during that time there's a lot that you need to be doing actively as a person that's involved in that now i know for some people this is can be and often is a controversial topic because people say you shouldn't breed, you should be rescuing. Well, fuck off. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's one way to look at it. (laughs) I see, uh, I actually see a massive problem in that style of thinking. Yes, I think we should be rescuing dogs. If you've got the capacity to do so, that is definitely a great mentality to have. And yes, there are some fantastic dogs. This is kind of a caveat discussion, you know, like I'm having here. But um, you know, we're all for rescue. We're we're actually tip our hats to people who are in the the rescue scene. There's no ifs, buts, or maybes about that. If you've got the capacity to rescue a dog, go ahead and do that. There are plenty of people out there. We've had Dallas on the show that's talked about that, and there's a myriad of people. You know, even over in the states, there's people like Amy Sadler who's got an extraordinary rescue program involved in that. So if that's in your heart, go ahead and do that. However. I don't like the mentality of people saying you should never breed dogs. We will actually do ourselves out of an industry completely with that mentality. Let me just say, because I, you know, I jump in and I say fuck off, but here's the thing, right? Mm. If, if we stop breeding dogs and the only place you can get a dog from is from an irresponsibly bred Which uh, will dog happen. that comes from a rescue, yeah. right? The rescue people are doing the right thing, but the people who led to that dog being in the rescue are the problem. We make the pieces of shit who irresponsibly breed dogs, the custodians of our dogs, right? Of where they will go, the temperament of those dogs, the personalities, the physical traits, the health. We make the people who don't give a shit in charge of where that goes in the future. Right. So people who then say, oh, breeders are the worst, you shouldn't be breeding. Well, fuck off. Because if you actually like dogs to be healthy and like well-rounded animals, Mm. you might want to invest in the people who – make it their life's work to produce those. Exactly. And, and what you said there about Dave is the exact type of breeder, the only type of breeder that I'm interested in, right, is the type of breeder who is trying to breed a dog for themselves, but there's 10 in the litter. Yep. So I now have to sell the other nine, yep. right? Because I am making a calculated decision to make an exact type of dog body, body the way I want it to be, brain the way I want it to be, to work or to or do how whatever. It should be. Yeah, how it should be. And then there's more of them. So I've got to do something with those dogs. And so I sell those on, yeah. right? That's my opinion on breeders. And, and I think that all the best ones are just trying to breed themselves a dog. Yep. Like, you know, uh, my dog is from uh, Sam Monty, Black Flag Kennels, and that's been his thing his whole life is he's just breeding dogs for himself and there's more. And he's very successful in the dogs that he produces because he, he, develops them all the same regardless of whether they're keeping his it's going to be his one or they're going to other people Mm. and that's why he's so sought after as a breeder of of those dogs is because of the work he does and the production the quality that he produces i'm actually glad you brought up sam as an example because i was watching videos that he's been putting up of a current litter that he's got on the ground at the moment 
And I mean, that guy works tirelessly with those litter of puppies. You yeah. know, I mean, he's got them running into pits full of bottles to to feed them. So they're they're learning to be tactile from the start. Mm-hmm. He's taking them out into fields where they're running around, and he's firing a shotgun off in the distance and yeah. so forth. So they he's teaching them not to be sound sensitive. Yeah, uh, you know, with the puppies are playing, he's taking care of critical distances. Like as a breeder and as somebody who's raising puppies for the style of work and the type of dog he's trying to produce, I mean, you couldn't find a more responsible. Person. Yeah, and it, that's why it's about investing the time and energy. Like when you buy a puppy, whether from him or anybody, right, mm. you are not just buying that genetics, you're buying then the work that they have put in over that time. Yep. And it is, you know, I've never bred dogs, but you know, it's a fuck ton of work. It's a horrendous amount of work. And one of our colleagues, Mel, she has been helping us out an extensive amount with our breeding program. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like she'll often go sleepless nights. She'll be sitting up with the pups. She'll be messaging me at all hours of the mornings, letting me know, you know, like if there's problems or what should she do. And, and I mean, she's learned an abundance of knowledge Mm -hmm. in the short time that she's been doing it, but absolutely been fantastic at picking up on issues and dealing with them quickly. And to be honest, I couldn't think of a better person that's been working with that primary stage mm-hmm. of staying with the with the female while she's in whelp, the aftercare, everything that she's been providing with that. So, you know, big shout out to her. Mm-hmm. Um, really appreciate what she did. Um, she hit the ground running with that whole project. Even heat regulation, because there's considerations. Puppies can't regulate heat for the first two weeks of their life. Mm-hmm. So we have to constantly monitor the whelping room temperatures and everything. So there's a whole lot that goes into it. So there was one stage, and this is only one person, so I didn't take this whole accusation personally, but they said, oh, you are only, you guys are only doing this for the money. And I thought, really? Like we actually had our accountants look over the, the, like the final bill and we were lucky to break even. There was literally no money left in it. By the time yeah. you take into, you know, your registration of your dogs, your membership, your vet paying fees. vet fees, yep. everything else, your feeding programs, hours that people get paid for doing things that they need to do to That's the killer is the time the time it's, input it's, from people. You you look, can't get that back. Yeah. Like you look at just say what Sam does, you, you talk about the Every time his dogs are eating, mm. that's a training session. It's not like he just fills a bowl with shit and throws it on the floor. That's to the right. Dogs here, good luck. Yeah. There's like a whole setup routine of and hours of it. Yeah. Yeah. Hours of challenge. setting up the scenario and yeah. then executing it, which takes 15 minutes. Yeah. And then hours to pack it all down again. Yeah. So there's a huge time burden in in raising puppies that mm. you, there is no return for. Yeah. Right? So this is actually, you know, talking about the whelping side of it, this is actually where I got in touch with Jeff and, you know, we've had some long conversations on the phone prior to us actually meeting and uh, Jeff and his partner were in the throes of developing a new whelping box and I was chatting to Jeff and I, you know, I was really curious as to what he was doing because I was pretty much organized to buy one and I rang him and I said, mate, this is a totally new concept which it's the whelp mate whelping box. Yeah, yeah. So I want you to chime in for a second, Jeff, and just tell us a little bit about that and how you got involved in that project because it struck a chord with me and I was curious from the start. And I was fortunate enough for you to loan me a box when Ladybug was having puppies and it was absolutely fantastic. So go ahead, have a chat to, to the audience about it. And then I want to talk to you further about breeding practices and so forth. Yeah, thanks, Glenn. And um, yeah, thanks for getting in contact with us and running through one of our boxes with one of your litters of puppies. So Grant, a mate of mine, was breeding dogs. He breeds Legottos occasionally and he was having a hell of a time with the current whelping setup that he had. He had a beautiful timber box that was heated, etc., but was heavy and took up half his living room. Mm. 
So basically, he just wanted something easier and simpler to clean, uh, which, as you guys know, is the majority of the time spent with your puppies is cleaning up their mess and whatever. Can I just jump in on that just quickly? Yeah. We were down the same path. We actually did have a whelping box, which was the same one that you're talking about, a wooden box with a yep. heating element in the bottom of it. Yeah. And and part of the problem for us – now, I know people are going to say, well, you know, it was the type of box you had, but part of the problem is is when you've got a bitch or a female, I should say, that's whelping puppies – a lot of the times there's a lot of fluids involved in that. Oh, yeah. You know, and, that's, and I didn't know that. The that's first, right. The first couple of days, it's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, that's the issue is that there is a lot of fluids involved in when puppies are born. Yeah. So, you know, for people out there who are looking to not make these mistakes, you've got to make sure that you're really conscious about the bacteria and the – you know, like the issues involved in that with all like the fluids that are being produced and constantly being produced by urine and defecations and so forth of puppies and spilt water, even just water on itself, getting into cracks and crevices of the whelping box can be an absolute nightmare. You know, and I mean, we were constantly like pulling it down, pulling all the paper out, F-tenning the corners of it. And, you know, like using silicon to try and do it up. But, I mean, that would come out and the female would scratch at it sometimes and pull out the corners and then you're going through that whole process again. Yeah. So back you, to you. You're introducing a lot of foreign materials well, yeah, that the, the dog ma- is not otherwise exposed to. That's so, right. Um, we took all that into account when we designed it. We thought, you know, we can make them for, for Grant and make this work. But with such a good idea, why don't we take it to market? And that was great, except it came with a whole host of problems, like you were saying, like materials, cleaning time, all that kind of stuff. So we sat down and we went, all right, what do we actually need to do to uh, produce a whelping box that's going to be successful to people and simple and within reason relatively cheaply? So that's when we turned to acrylic, which was the material of choice because given the right environment, it's pretty much non-toxic relatively accessible and quite easy to work with in terms of manufacturing Mm. and also the weight the weight's the biggest thing like you guys know trying to cart a whelping box around your house is nearly impossible so having the ability to have it somewhere where you like it like in a living room was really good but then you know being up and all hours it'd be nice to move it into the bedroom be nice to move it you know down into your living room or across into the kitchen Uh, so it had to be portable And that all came as a secondary to building sort of our first prototype out of out of acrylic for Grant. And that was just a a basic straight sided structure that we cut up and glued together. And that was super successful, except it didn't come with the functionalities of being able to break it down. Didn't come with the functionality of being able to take it outside and clean it very easily compared to your timber box, which is what we were trying to get away from. Mm-hmm. So Mark II came and we went, all right, let's take it to a, a manufacturing place and run them through our idea and see what they've got to. And that's when we came up with the one that you use, Glenn, which is the, the waterproof base with the foldable sides. Mm. So you've used it, you've seen it, and how easy was that to clean compared to this timber box you are talking about? Mate, it was unbelievable. And let alone just be able to like fold the sides down and quickly move it in because we originally had it in the bathroom, but it was causing stress for Ladybug when she was having the pups. So we thought, oh, look, we'll move it into the bedroom and see if that makes any difference. The fact that I could just do that in five minutes, like literally five minutes, pull the bedding out of it, give it a wipe down, fold the sides down, take it straight in there and set it back up again. And, you know, within 10 minutes time of doing that and putting the heating mat back down in there, perfect. I mean, we had it up and ready and her back in and the pups back in and we prevented 
stress and cortisol and everything for, for her, which is a problem in whelping puppies as well. You know, the more stressed the female is, the more cortisol she's producing. I mean, that's coming through the milk into the pups and so forth. So really, you know, during these are whelp all the time, things people don't think of. Absolutely. The well, there are only things you learn on the fly. This is a, and this is why I wanted to get together and talk about this because people have been shooting questions at me online all the time. I thought, screw it, let's just do a podcast on it so yep. we can actually educate people on the do's and what not to do's. I mean, the first time you get involved in this, it's it's hectic. You get very stressed about it and you get very anxious about it. And it doesn't matter if you've done it the first time or the 20th time, you know, I mean, there are complications and things that go wrong. Having a whelping box set up, and this is why I wanted to talk to you about it, made all the difference between having it stuck out there where I couldn't, like when I'm pointing out there, I'm saying in the lounge room for people who can't see where my hand is pointing at. Yep. But having it stuck out there and, you know, having to have two or three people having to try and balance it through the house to try and get it to the, the room that you need it in. So some old school people say, well, why would you have a whelping box in your house with dogs in it anyway? Well, yeah. certain dogs need extra levels of care. If you're talking about your old farm sort of dog, some of these dogs that go under the house and have their puppies and resurface, <laughs> you know, six weeks later when the pups are learning to come out. I mean, the, yeah. and they've thrived and survived for doing that for many years. There are some benefits to whelping in dirt, right? There are some – I can't remember exactly. Like I said, I'm not a breeder, but I, I know some people prefer to do that. Well, dogs have been around a little longer than humans, so they yeah. have to do it mm. somewhere before we develop these boxes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. and there's Na- plenty of street dogs. Nature does take its course. Yeah. yeah, there's plenty of street dogs that are doing just fine. Yeah. There's dogs that will go out in the local barn and give birth to puppies in the hay bale or something mm. like that. And, yeah. you know, like that's where farmers usually have their puppies. They'll take the dog to a shed – throw some hay on the ground and pups will just whelp on there and they live and thrive and survive in excellent condition, mm. you know. But, I mean, some of the more exotic breeds that are out now don't seem to do so well on that. And, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's a problem in itself. Being one of those people who have got French bulldogs and decided to have a litter out of it, we need to make sure that she was calm and relaxed. And, I mean, Ladybug is a great dog, but she gets stressed out about things that change in her environment, yep. especially while they're having puppies. I mean, the first three weeks of a female having puppies is, I mean, number one, she'd never had them before, so you didn't know what to do. Fortunately, her instincts kicked in and straight away she jumped into it like a pro. However, you know, like most mothers and most females, they don't want people eyeballing and hanging around their pups, mm. yeah. which was you know, there was some slight modifications we need to do to the box at the time, which was put a few towels over it just so she could have that perfect little bat cave yep. environment. As soon as we did that, fixed everything for her. Well, that's one of the trade-offs that we've been sort of toying with for a long time. A lot of people are iffy about the clear sides and the clear doors yep. saying, you know, your, your, your female needs to be um, covered up in a den for the first door to induce whelping, etc. And that's great. That's perfect. That's all true. And that's something that we can also take care of with one of our accessories, but towels, blankets, etc., to turn that clear box into a den is definitely appropriate for the first day or two. And, yep. and we, we advocate that heavily, even so, though our product, as it comes out of the box, doesn't achieve that. So we've all seen it, but let's just go back a step and yep. describe the actual box to, to, to people who understand what we're talking about. Why is it different from anything else other than that you say it's acrylic? Okay, so when you um, unpack it, the difference is predominantly the clear sides. Mm-hmm. It's got a black plastic base, which is a tub style, like a bathtub with a with low sides, and that keeps it completely waterproof. And is then, that one piece manufacture? So yeah, yeah, it's no a molded piece. There's no right. no nooks or crannies or holes yep. or anything that you can get any sort of liquid or bacteria into. Yep. Yeah, well, that that was our sort of number one. It has yep. to be easy to clean, yep. and to achieve that, no corners. 
uh, nice rounded edges and the ability for it to be completely waterproof. So if the dogs Perfect. piddle in it or you spill water bowls or whatever, uh, there's no chance of your carpet getting wet, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So then the, the clear acrylic sides fold up and then you've got doors that slide in and locate on hooks. So you've got various height doors for various size dogs. And so that's our, that's our biggest difference is the fact that there's clear sides and that is somewhat of a point of contention. Again, Glenn, you've, you've sort of touched on that, that there's the possibility that your bitch doesn't feel comfortable in that. We agree with that and that's easily overcome. So you've got a little cover that you showed me on your website. Yeah, it's, a hood for it, yeah. Yeah, it's like a canvas hood that once you set up the sides of it and get them all propped into place, you can. It, this just goes on like a glove. So it just... Essentially, um, yeah, it's a fitted sheet. For yeah, the, yeah, yeah. And it's got a little flap door that you can go into and so forth. So at the start, Ladybug didn't appreciate the fact that we were looking in on her at the start. This is quite normal for anybody yep. who's done whelping before. It's the same as a human mother with a child. They wouldn't like people peering into the pram and touching their babies. And It's confidence for them that stuff's not going to come in and, and attack their babies once they come it, out. Exactly. So to reduce her stress, we just clipped towels around the side of it and we left her alone as much as we possibly could. However, you know, like if you're actively involved in breeding, you need to get in there, you need to check the pups for things like cleft pellets, umbilical cord damage, making sure that they haven't got any inflammation or lumps, bumps and scratches and so forth. Making sure that they're actually being weighed is a very important one. So, I mean, at least once a day, at least once a day, because we usually do it twice. We've got puppies out and sitting them on scales and measuring, making sure that they're actually putting on weight, yep. doing skin tests to make sure that they're hydrated, that their skin is supple and snapping back into position very quickly. There's lots of things that you actually need to do. However, what Very you, regularly too. Very regularly, especially in those first two weeks. It's absolutely imperative that this is done. And again, um, this is all this is all to sort of save the attrition rate, so to speak. Absolutely, like, like you were saying before, a dog can quite comfortably whelp out on the dirt, mm-hmm. and the majority of pups will stay alive. But for those people who are investing a lot of time and a lot of effort and mm-hmm. want these dogs to go to good people, it is about making sure that one hundred percent of your pups stay one hundred percent healthy mm-hmm. all the time. There's also something to be said about gentle manipulation handling of puppies while they're going through that developmental process as well. Yeah. The first two weeks, uh, you could argue whether or not it's worth it. It is definitely worth it for to make sure the health and well-being is being attested to. And you can tell the difference in pups between those that have been well yep. exposed and well handled to the ones that have just been yeah. raised. The work that Dr. John Paul Scott did early off in finding out the critical period of development in puppies, I mean, all of this work was imperative to make sure that if you are raising dogs in working roles or pet roles or home, you know, like having sociable sound puppies, it is absolutely, especially if it's cohabitating into a human environment, it is absolutely essential that these pups are handled, they're managed, and that they're learning about the whole I'm going to call the term generalization. That is the actual correct term of being habituated to environments and also socialize with the home, yep. you know, meeting the humans that are involved in there, or if there's other pets involved in there throughout the, the social stage of development. And various other things that are in the household that are going to be part of their life for the for the foreseeable future. Absolutely. Now, I don't want to pick on the rescue people, especially the people who are doing an enormous service to society, but there are a lot of people who are taking on these type of dogs where that hasn't been done right. And Pat made an an essential connection to that before because there's a lot of times that, that the dogs that are ending up in the pounds 
or in the rescue environments aren't being raised right. You know, they're not, they don't have breeders that are taking care of them properly or, and I'm not picking on people who raise dogs on farms either because a lot of them do an, an enormous service to their dogs, but there are a lot of people who just shrug this whole critical period of development and then they hand the dog off to a new buyer or, or they try and rehome the puppies just to get them out of there. Yep. And they've already come with a swag of problems. Something I'll just add to what we said before, you know, proper ethical breeding would completely eliminate the need for rescue because a good breeder will take back all their puppies yeah. if need be, no matter the age of the dog, no matter what happens, your circumstances change. The dog doesn't turn out to be what you want. A good breeder will take that dog back. Mm. So that therefore there would be no rescue if there were only good breeders. Yeah. See in, in Germany. And I mean, I know that there is speculation around this and some outcry and outrage about it. But in Germany, back in the day, they used to have breed wardens. Mm -hmm. And the role of the breed warden was to go around and look at the litter of puppies and cull the ones that weren't suitable to be sent out to homes. Mm -hmm. Like if there was any speculation about nervousness or deformity or anything like that in the pup, they would say, these four are fine, those two, no. And, you know, those pups would be euthanized. Now, I know people these days want to save every everything, and the problem is, I don't, I don't mind people wanting to save them, but the problem is, is they still get out there and they breed from them, yeah. And that's the that's the issue, and that's where we're seeing this, you know, breakdown in in how people are producing and raising puppies is that they're weakening the gene pool by allowing these pups to get out there. So if they get out there and they desex them, well, that eliminates the problem. Yeah, you know, totally. that that stops it point blank. And look, there's still a lot of unethical breeders out there who they don't care what they're producing. They're just slapping dogs together and they're pretty much just, you know, it's a it's a mixing pot of dogs. So and these people advertising are advertising it to the to the not educated people as as a new breed or something different. That's right. So that this doesn't matter if they're commercial breeders who are doing the wrong thing and they've got, you know, hundreds of dogs in squalid conditions and just producing terrible puppies in terrible conditions to try and fill a market need or if they're registered breeders and they're doing the same thing and, you know, claiming that they're ethical and and yet still producing problem puppies because essentially no one cares. And this is the thing that I guess this is the point that I'm trying to get to is that nobody cares at that stage where there's hundreds and thousands of people out there that are breeding animals, and I'm going to say, I'm going to talk about the whole pool of animals that do give a shit, that they do put in hours, like hundreds of hours of work trying to get these puppies right, trying to make sure that they're researching lines and bloodlines and so forth, and and working on that critical period of development. So by the time the puppy does go to market and is going into a home, there's so much work that you could never put a dollar figure on it in trying to make money out of it. I mean, it just isn't practical. There's mm. just hundreds and hundreds of hour, of invested hours of care and concern and thoughtfulness and attention and veterinary care, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that's going into the, like I said, the overall development. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Mm. So we rudely interrupted you on finishing off talking about your whelping box No, system. that's all right. Not mm. a drama. Where are we up to? I suppose what you did touch on uh, that is probably our second biggest point and the reason that we we developed the box like we did is that environmental phase, the the very early phase of the pup where it opens its eyes and it looks at the world and goes, all right, this is where I'm in. This is what I have to deal with. And having the clear sides, we somewhat accidentally found out by a prototype that we made for Grant out of clear plastic because at the time the clear was the, the cheaper option. And we toyed around with, you know, it doesn't really matter. We can put towels around it and whatever. But we found that 
Well, Grant found that those pups were incredibly grounded, super capable and very steady going dogs because from day one, they were looking at the kids running around the house. They were seeing vacuum cleaners. They were associating noise with sight, Mm. which is what a lot of whelping boxes don't do. They don't allow the dog to associate a movement or an action with a sound. Um, and then they become a little bit confused and go, oh, there's a loud sound, I don't know what's going on. Then then your fear creeps in and the dog becomes reserved and, and doesn't want to explore the, the outer world, so to speak. Um, so with the clear sides, that gives the pups the ability to learn at that critical age, not at the eight-week period when it goes to its home, but in, yep. the, in the weeks coming after the eyes open. And it gives the pup that ability to associate the world with what it actually is. And it takes all that need for that post eight week training out of it because they already know what's going on. They already see it. They already associate it, and it's not so scary. Um, so that that's a big factor with our boxes that we think is is quite quite important over some of the other other ones out there at the moment. Mm-hmm. So it's a black base, completely molded solid plastic, no Correct. corners. Then has clear sides that yep. what fold down or something. Yeah, they for can transport. they can fold down into the box, so you can you can tuck it under your bed or or in a in a cupboard or up in the roof of your garage, mm-hmm. um, because it does weigh only I think seventeen or eighteen kilos, totally broken down and put away. So the average person can quite easily lift that above their head, which you can't do with your your plywood style box. Yep, and then it's it's super easy to put away, and therefore makes everything so much easier and as glenn said before you want to move rooms you move rooms you Mm -hmm. don't have to within minutes yeah that happens within a 10 minute time frame you can pack it down roll it into the new room because it's got little wheels on the side of it Mm -hmm. so you roll it in on the side and unpack it it's a 10 minute job Mm -hmm. to get it from one end of your house to the other end of your house set up and you were talking about the female not liking these moves and that kind of stuff but on the flip side of that coin and and to support the the clear sides of the box and the puppies doing well, you know, moving from room to room, seeing the different sort of facets of human life where they're going to have to be dealing with, I believe is a good thing. And although you don't want to stress the the mum at a time of having her pups, etc., she's familiar with the house. She knows what room she's going That's into. That's right. Um, so it's not that big a deal. And it mm. also gives the pups a lot more, lot more experience in those younger days and weeks yep. uh, to make sure they are a better pup. Hey, so, and it's electric, right? So it has a heating panel? No, like, it doesn't have a heating panel. It no, doesn't have that? No, no we, um, we looked at that extensively mm-hmm. and toyed around with that idea and we kept it super simple for one reason and one reason only, we keep power out of the box. Right. So the majority of whelping boxes out there at the moment, you've got to put a, a heat lamp over the top of mm-hmm. or you've got to put a thermostatic bed mat, warming mm-hmm. bed mat underneath. Uh, and you've got to run power into the box for that or have a relatively unsafe lamp that can explode at any time sitting above it. So by using ABS plastic, which is the base is moulded out of, uh, the thermal properties of that material are localised and quite good. So you put the heating mat on the outside of the box underneath, okay, which heats up the local area above the pad. So you can, you can warm up a quarter of the box, half of the box, whatever you think is sufficient for mm-hmm. the number of pups that you've got while still maintaining a cooler area for them to get away if they mm-hmm. start feel like they're overheating. And it keeps all the electrics out of the box. So right. there's no chewing, there's no safety issues with electricity being in the box, mm-hmm. which again is is quite important, I think. You see a lot of these whelping boxes with cords coming in the side with mm-hmm. a, a heat mat under your blankets, et cetera. And it just takes one pup to have a bit of chew on that and yep. and then you, you're down one. 
Yeah. <laughs> or at the very least, you're developing bad habits in that puppy right from the start. Exactly. So is that what you did, Glenn? You had a, a, a mat underneath the Yeah, whole thing. we did use a little mat. Only, the only reason was it was the middle of winter yeah. and, you know, our floor isn't insulated underneath. So we did put a bit of insulation between the floor and the whelping box, but they just needed that little extra more. So we got a low voltage mat that we found at a local place in Sydney and I can put the details up of that, but uh, what it is, it's a contact mat. So as the pups lay on it, it heat only it doesn't heat on its own. It only heats with contact. Right. So as the pups lay on it, it heats up. Then it's like twelve volts. So even if they did chew on it, there's low risk of getting electrocuted or causing a fire or anything like that, mm-hmm. and it shuts itself off. So very very good little design. The cat's using it now. He's he's sleeping <laughs> on it now in the other room. So because it's freezing, it's winter now. We've put it out in his little box in the other room and he's enjoying that. But at the time it was absolutely perfect. So for about, I think we had it in there for about three weeks and then we took it out and we didn't need to use it after that. Mm-hmm. I mean, once the temp- temperature regulation is fine, I mean, we had the the heater on in the room, so we had, you know, good ambient temperature, but they just needed that extra contact temperature and getting it in the box. Mm-hmm. And if they didn't want it, they could move off it so they could move into other areas. The other thing is matting in the kennel, uh, not in the kennel, matting in the whelping box as well. There's some very good matting on the market that if the pups wee on it, it just transfers straight to the paper below it as well. Mm -hmm. So it gets uh, it it off the pups at the time. Again, I can put details of all those sort of things up because these are things that we've experimented over time. So people, some people just use towels and old, blankets and so forth which are fine that's no problem it's just that they retain they retain the moisture in it and i mean it stinks in the room yeah whereas if you can get these other ones the moisture just wicks straight through goes to the paper underneath and you can take it off at the end of the day clean it all off just sponge the poo off and then the problem sorted but if you've got a female in the room that's very good at cleaning and maintaining her pups which ladybug was amazing i've got to say for a female that it was a maiden litter and, you know, she had an enormous litter of pups. She had eight pups for her first litter, wow. which is well and truly above what we expected her to have. But uh, when she had them, uh, she was maintaining them from the start, cleaning them well. And that's one thing that you've got to make sure that you do actually have is a, a female that A, doesn't freak out, B, that she's um, maintaining and regulating the pups well. And some can overdo it, which is why, again, you've got to check them to make sure that they don't lick them too much and give them redness on their genitals and their bum. And there's, like I said, there's so many intricate things that you've got to actually go through to make sure that they're doing their job. You don't have to do it for them and you can leave those puppies alone essentially for that period of time. And occasionally, like I said, you do need to step in and you do just need to do just a small amount of maintenance thing. Whereas some people... If the female doesn't let milk properly, you know, you've got an issue with not the puppies not getting colostrum, which automatically puts a dent in their immunity system. You can get colostrum supplements, which I've found a place for that online as well. So if we've we've had all these issues before. So we've done Roddy's Shepherds and, you know, French Bulldogs over over a period of time. We've had some females that have so much milk, it's like you just touch them and they explode with milk. Yeah. We've had other ones that it's taken them a good week before they get milk down, and even then there's not a lot of it. Mm-hmm. So you've got puppies that are in serious risk right from the start. Sorry to interrupt there, No, Glenn. please. Just one more point about those clear sides, and, and a lot of people probably don't know, is the ability to see in. Yes. All good for I was going to talk about that because that is an important point. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, the the idea of seeing in is so that you can monitor what's yep. going on without being in their face. So you're saying they don't like that that peering in style kind of looking over, over, over the, the, top, the top, looming, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So you can quite comfortably sit on your on your lounge room uh, couch and look in and see what's going on and make sure that that female is taking care of her pups like she should be doing or you can get in there and do it or you can leave her alone, um, mm. which can be done from a, a relative distance away to keep that female nice and calm, which is the other benefit of the clear sides. That's a good point you bring up because I think maybe a lot of people don't understand is that some bitches are quite dangerous in yeah. those when they're just about to give birth and yeah. for the first sort of week afterwards – Especially Very in working dogs. Proud, yeah. yeah, especially in working dogs who have been trained to bite people. <laughs> you shouldn't be surprised when they bite you for coming in on close to their, their intruding. That's babies. not just a working dog thing. No, that's what I mean, mm. but like especially in working dogs. But yeah. some like it's not an t- uncommon thing. In fact, Sean got nailed by Zika. He was in hospital when she that's was That's right, pregnant. he did too. Yeah, yeah. he's had it all over Facebook. And mm. it's his dog, but he just knows that prior yeah. to giving birth, she turns and becomes not his dog anymore and becomes yeah. like a- she's, um, got, she's got a bigger thing to look after. Yeah, I've got more important shit going yeah. on than you. But that's and, a great point. That's a really good point, Pat, because there's a lot of people who have really lost their wig over the fact that their female dog that's been their little pet baby yeah. um, for years and years and years- suddenly has a litter of puppies and nails them, yeah. you know, and they can't believe it. There have been a myriad of people who've rang me up and said, oh, my God, I've just been bitten by my dog. And I said, puppies? And I said, yeah. You know, I mean, I knew that the dog was whelping and, and so forth, but I've just said, did you go in to touch the pups? They said, yep. And I said, you know, how did you do it? What was the process? And they've told me, and I said, yeah, that that happens. Mm. You know, and they've said, oh, is this going to be a long-term problem? I said, as, as soon as those hormones change and switch back and she doesn't, you know, really want the pups around her anymore and they're hurting her nipples. I said, she won't give a shit about you touching the pups and she yeah. won't bite you anymore. I said, it's just in that two to three week phase where they become very protective and very maternal about raising and caring for the pups. So that's a very, very red flag time for some um, females with their puppies. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I, um, <laughs> one of the first litters I ever saw, like brand new was uh, Sam's dog Gwen and had the, uh, her first successful litter. And I was there, I think they were four or five days old. And, you know, she bites, right? Like that dog bites. And I was in the garage. This is Gwen? Yeah, Gwen, yeah. 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 I was in the garage. You know, he had the welcoming box set up there. And he tells her, you know, go out and empty out outside. And she she went to the door and she looked back at me. And I knew exactly what she was saying. She was like, don't you fucking touch any of my puppies while I'm gone. <laughs> right? And I was like, I nodded. Like, okay, I won't. I understand. You're right. I touched you all of them, right? Like, I. <laughs> as soon as all she, of the puppies. As soon as she came back in, she smelt them and looked at me like, I fucking told you not to touch these puppies. And Gwen's like, and Sam says, like, you know, don't kill him. Like, she's like, okay, accept that. Oh, she was considering it. Oh, she looked at me like, I. I fucking told you not to touch my puppies. Yeah. And the same thing, uh, like a Remy's mum. I got a photo of me with him before his eyes are even open, like, and I'm holding him. And she did the same thing, came back in and looked at me like, how fucking dare you? I told you not to as I was leaving. <laughs> but that's control, you know what I mean? Like, they don't, mm. they were in control of themselves and were told, don't, don't nail this guy. But I have no doubt without that direction, I would have been bitten for sure. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there is some – look, I've, I've met some people over periods of time, predominantly more so in the Roddies because that's a breed that I was involved with. But I've met some people over time who have just been absolutely amazing with the the way they handle – even, you know, when they've had aggressive females and so forth, the way that they've handled them and distracted them from the pups and taken them out there, cleaned them, had everything set up. By the time the female comes back in there, the levels of stress reduced that, that – 
they're not concerned that, you know, like same sort of thing. They kind of sniff the puppies and go, ah, oh, no, you've touched them. Yeah. But I mean, look, you have to get in there. The box can get manky at times when you're, you know, if you leave bedding in there for long periods of time. It's, uh, like I said, there's lots of fluids. A female is still excreting fluids, you know, like there's clotted blood and all sorts yeah, of yeah. stuff that comes out. It's quite gross. But when you're used to it, you're just used to it. You're, you're aware that this is all going to happen. It just needs to be cleaned and maintained and keeping that environment nice and healthy and so forth. And it's a practice that you've you've got to get used to. But once you actually do it and you get everything structured and get it right, it's done within half an hour. You know, you get in there and you clean everything up and those pups are nicely structured and everything and then you don't have to stress about it. When you're not setting these things up properly, it becomes stressful, trying to get the female out, trying to get them. And and so a lot of times they don't want to leave. They need to leave. They need to, they need to toilet. They need to do a lot of things. And you can see that they're relieved to do it, but they're also stressed when they get out to the yard. They want to race straight back in and then they're covered in dirt and stuff from being out in the yard. You have to clean them up so you don't transfer it back in and make sure you don't transfer pathogens from outside back to inside. So there's a lot of fuss and a lot of maintenance that needs to be done. You know, like it, like you said, you, th- you think to yourself, why didn't I just have farm dogs and raise them on hay yeah. outside the, <laughs> the, the outside the property? But when you're doing this right and you've got, you know, people that are making products like you are and other people around the world who are helping people do it better, it's reducing the stress overall of both the people that are that are, ma- that are doing the whelping practices and for the females that are having puppies at the same time. Oh, exactly. And that's mm. what it's all about. It's about making it simpler for you so you can reduce your own stress levels and get on with your life and, and also let the, the dog and the puppies enjoy their life too. That's right. So for people who are wondering, you know, like what's all this got to do with me? You know, I'm not, I'm not a breeder. The problem is, and not the problem, but the point I guess that we've been making throughout the show that we've been talking about a long time is you're going to get – your puppy from a, a breeder. A bred dog, That's yeah. right. Mm. So if your breeder isn't taking the time to do these practices, you know, like we talked about Sam before from Black Flag Kennels, um, who produces, how many male litters does he have a year? Probably just one. Probably. One, one, maybe two yeah. at the most. You know, and, and as Pat mentioned before, he's a breeder that's trying to produce his own dog, like looking to get longevity out of his line so he's got something to continue when he's as his dog starts to age. But also, you know, like... The point is, is not only if you're producing puppies for yourself, but if you've got dogs that are going to serve applications for other law enforcement groups in that type of dog, mm-hmm. or if you've got good sound dogs that are great pets and so forth. Like I'll give you an example of something that there was a bit of to and fro some time ago that's kind of reduced the tempo, but it's still in the background. I'm involved in an association called the Pet Industry Association of Australia, and we've got a guy on there called Matt Hams, and he's a commercial breeder. And he's been accused of everything from being a puppy farmer. You know, it's been in his family for years. So he's got a very much an open door policy on his breeding practices. Him and his family actually do a good job of what they're doing. They let people come in. They let people see what they're doing. The state government of Victoria recently changed all their laws in breeding practices and said, you know, like you have to reduce your numbers to 50 breeding animals, et cetera, et cetera. So he said, look, fine, that's the law. I will do what the law tells me I need to do in order to keep my business and keep my family property and everything like that. So, he is producing pet puppies on a mass scale, but he's complying with all the laws. So he is effectively a commercial breeder. He's still being accused of being a puppy farmer, which he's he said, look, I'm breeding puppies, that's true, 
but I'm still lawfully abiding by what the state government tells me and the federal government tells me I need to do as a breeder. So he's setting it up beautifully. You know, all the females are comfortable. They don't overbreed them. They rehome them to homes like they give them away to, to people once they're um, once they're finished with their breeding practices. The puppies are raised well. They have dedicated staff. Like they've, he's got heaps of staff on his property, cleaning, maintaining, looking after them. And I mean, I spoke to him at the start about it and he was sort of filling me in. And I've got to be honest. I've got to be honest. When I first met him and when I first spoke to him, I thought the guy was a puppy farmer, you know, didn't care about anything. I couldn't be further from the truth. This guy is absolute. him and his family, his wife, all these, all the guys that are working for him, all the guys and girls that are working for him, are absolutely dedicated professionals that spend an abundance of time with those with those pups. And no one talks about what he's doing to the greater population. Like it's it's all good to say he's farming puppies and producing hundreds of dogs a month or year or whatever, but he's also probably giving pleasure to hundreds of families with those dogs because he's doing it properly. Um, and providing a service to the community, like you were saying, Pat, about doing it right. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really matter how many dogs he's producing because he's he's making all these people happy and, and giving them what they want in a satisfactory method. Mm. The spotlight's on him for being people t- saying that he lacks credibility for what he's doing. The spotlight is not on the people who are doing it in sheds regardless, you know, who don't register themselves, who don't yep. stick their hand up and saying, yes, I'm a breeder. So they've got a shonky old shed. And the good thing is, is that, you know, they're getting more and more closed down. We're somewhat becoming out of the dark ages where those sort of unscrupulous practices are getting taken out. But, you know, I mean, there were people who really were doing some terrible things in squalid conditions for, for you know, kittens and pups and horses and yep. et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on and on and on. And being in this industry, you know, I get to see a spotlight on some of those things. He's not that guy. You know, he's not that sort of person who's doing that shitty old 40-year-ago practices um, like some of the greyhound breeders were doing. But going back to that, there's greyhound breeders that are – incredible with what they're doing with their dogs. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they come under the the spotlight as well as being people that are uh, unethical, yet they're people who supplement their dogs, extreme diet programs, extreme exercise programs, extreme socialization programs where they're out, you know, exercising their adult dogs, raising their puppies well. They're out all day with the dogs, running them through the paddocks and so forth and, and doing whatever they need to do. I've seen this with pet with pet dog people before or, you know, show people before, working dog people, where they have got extensive programs set up where they're constantly working with the puppies every single day. Like they actually dedicate that eight weeks. Some people take time off work. Some people, they have shifts where, you know, if it's a husband and wife team doing it, one will do the first couple of weeks, one will do the next couple of weeks, and then they'll have an exchange program where they, they just... Feel sorry for the ones doing the first couple of weeks. Oh, <laughs> so do I. That's it, the bum it, end yeah. of the stick. To be honest, Narelle, my wife, did an extensive amount of work, again, for Ladybug when she was with the pups. She was incredible the amount of of dedication that she actually did with all the cleaning and maintaining and getting things ready and the feeding programs like she had feeding programs i I got a sidetrack onto this point which is a very poignant issue a lot of people underfeed their females when they're whelping they underfeed them when they're they're lactating as well so narelle was actually showing me how much food our little french bulldog needed and 
It was more food than I could eat, but she needed that because of the amount of energy she was producing to get all that milk out. Yeah. So we had we were feeding her four times a day, and even like twelve o'clock at night, I'd wake up and check the pups and give her like a bowl of food. So we she would maintain. Um, she was organizing and structuring like this raw healthy diet for her all the time where we'd just go into the fridge, set it up, plop it down for her, and she was eating. Now, these pups never missed a beat. And I, I don't think that I've seen a better system of – I mean, it was a pain in the ass, let me tell you, but I don't think I've ever seen a better feeding practice than what we were doing. And she never, ever missed a beat with her lactation. Those pups were healthy from the minute we had them to the minute we let them go. Yeah. We didn't have any health issues. We didn't have any problems. We didn't. We weren't rushing them off to the vet. We weren't getting them checked. They were boisterous. They were rigorous. They were energetic. They were passing their their fluids well. Everything that they were doing was absolutely fantastic. And I have to credit my wife with that because I mean, look, she researches feeding programs anyway, and a lot of this was a testing ground that she wanted to make sure that she was passing this on to the pups. So, I mean, if you're going to do it, do it right. This, I, I guess this is the golden message in everything that you're doing. Yep. Set everything up right and work with people that, well, especially if you're going to buy a puppy, make sure that your breeder actually has a sound breeding program, they're breeding solid dogs, and they're taking care of them from the get-go. Yeah, I, I think the, the big takeaway from all of this for someone like me who doesn't breed and have no intention to in the near future anyway is – to expect more of your breeders. Uh, yeah. I, I harp on at this at all the seminars I do is um, is to expect more, no matter whether you're getting a working dog or a pet dog or whatever, is to, first of all, check out the breeder, know them, right? But also expect them to be developing the dog. They're not just bringing that dog into the world. They're getting it started for you. That mm. that period, as you say, from six weeks to eight weeks when you're going to take it is super important, right? Absolutely. And like when I- That's why it's called the critical period. Yeah. If you can't go in and inspect the puppies and see their practices, then it's because they're doing something they don't want you to see. Like, yep. so don't just run, oh, just leave straight totally away. Totally agree. Yeah. Right? I'm, I'm not a breeder, but I'm a, I'm a big dog fan. And- um. A lot of people have asked me, why do you spend so much money on purebred dogs and whatever when you can go out and get a, a mongrel or a, a lesser bred dog? And I say, it's not the money, it's the fact that I know that dog comes with something. Mm. Not only confirmation and breeding, but that the critical period upbringing and I know that that dog's going to be trainable, it's going to be sociable, it's going to be all, all the things you want out of a little pup that that extra couple of hundred thousand dollars over over another dog is well worth it over the period of its life and a longer life too generally absolutely yeah and, and so you know one thing you see people oh i've got this timid little puppy okay well you shouldn't <laughs> like, <laughs> exactly. like, like puppies shouldn't be timid yeah like yeah. if you go to the breeder and the puppies are seven weeks old or whatever and they don't all come running at you then that breeder hasn't done a good job. Mm. Like they, they puppies shouldn't be scared of anything. If 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 they've yep. been well socialized and well, just well raised exposed to, to that point, exposed. Yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. Is they should come running over to you. I see it here, right? Like when you guys have puppies here and you've got them in the puppy pen out there. 
when I walk past, and how old are they when you put them into there? Like, oh, we start them from six to eight weeks. Yeah, they all come running to the cage. They're all barking at me. They all want me to come over and interact. My, you know, my Springer runs over to them and dives on her back and tries to feed them. Even Rip, when you brought him around here, yeah, man, we've got video of that Mm. as well. Like, that's what a puppy should be doing is trying to interact with the environment because it's only had loads of positive experiences. It therefore assumes like, well, this is something positive as well. Yeah, Yeah, this is good. If you've got a, if you're going to pick up your puppy and it's this timid little thing at seven weeks old, like that's going to be a problem for life, right? Like it shouldn't be like that. The, the rehab involved in getting a puppy back from from that to a normal socialised fun dog is is extreme. Yeah, it is exactly. extensive. And I mean, as, as trainers that we both are, that's one of the issues that I deal with extensively. Like every week for the last eight weeks, I've had aggressive dogs here for sessions with me because they're dogs that haven't been raised properly from puppies. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like the people know that. It, just to give you a, an insight on that, what, which Pat was talking about, we had a litter of Roddy's once and I think there were six in the litter. Five of them were absolutely outstanding. You know, their temperaments were uh, impeccable. Everything that you would want in a puppy, they were giving it off. They were uh, boisterous. They were energetic. They were investigatory. The strong working ones, there was two in there, um, had you know, great bites. They were very enthusiastic. Um, they loved chasing the prey items. There was one pup in the litter that was nervous and was like shrinking around the, the building and hiding away, like just completely different, like in every single way to what the other ones were. The interesting thing, we let people see her so they could understand. The interesting thing was people are attracted to her straight away. Yeah, yeah. And I said, no, she's not for sale. We're not selling her to, to public. And people were offering more money for her. And I thought to myself, why would you want this dog? And that's what I'm saying. This is not the puppy. Because I, sh- I was saying, that, you know, this is what you want in puppies. I was showing them. And they go, oh, the little one over there, the one that runs away. And I said, no, she's getting de-sexed and the staff member's taking her. But they were saying, oh, we'll buy her. I'm like, no, no, she's not for sale. Yeah. You know, it, it got to the point where I actually had to stop showing them to people because every single person that saw her was willing to put down money for it. Yeah. And if I was unethical, I could say, yeah, sure. Yeah, take her, you know, and us, which was dumb. It was just in- incredulous that the- that people were saying, I want to give you more money for the puppy that's damaged in the litter. Well, yeah. they don't see it as damaged because they're somewhat slightly uneducated. I bet most of those people haven't had many dogs in their life. That's um, a very good point. And haven't seen what But it's the, the emotional the thing too. Yeah. Yeah. The want to take care of, yeah. 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 <laughs> I get so fucking angry when I talk about this, especially, you know, the dogs we have had come through the club. Like what, what kills me as well is yet, but breeders who put a lot of time and effort into genetics, uh, importing and, and doing all the right thing. And, and you say, it's funny to say like purebred dogs, because I am not anti purebred dogs, but I am for, I like working dogs, right? Like my dog, my dog's a mongrel. He's, his parents, he doesn't have any paperwork. He's a, his, both his parents cost nearly 30 grand each. They were both imported to Australia and, was, and he's a dog I waited nine years to get from that bloodline, but no paperwork, right? Yeah. Um, so it's, a, it's, a, it's as much calculated breeding as you could possibly get, but not registered. Anyway, so people spend all this time, effort and get importing and, and then don't do any development. And it's like, 
you know, genetics is one very important part of the puzzle. Yeah. I get that. It's a very important part. But then the development is the other equally as important part. And well, then they spoil these puppies and they don't expose them to anything. Like you can tell immediately when, when someone brings a dog into the club, they get this brand new puppy. We're like, fantastic. Here we go. This is the dog you've, you've saved up or you've, you've waited till your life was correct, you know, and everything you can now, now you're ready to start this working dog and it's got no food dry. And it's like, well, <laughs> it should it's just that for the first eight weeks of its life, well, well, when it was actually eating solid food, say like the four to eight weeks, it had an abundance of food more and it was fed away from its little mates, like individually from a, a never ending bowl of food. Yep. So he will have food drive, but we're going to have to spend months re-educating this dog and the hardship he's going to have to go through in order to learn that food is a commodity he has to work for. Whereas- just putting down enough food to sustain those dogs but not keep them happy and feeding them communally. Like that tiny fucking difference would change that dog's life forever and make him, first of all, so much more trainable. And he, if he's going to go into a working role, he has to be trainable. That's mm. that's a huge part of it. And that, that's the biggest point. Like that's the difference between a working dog and a pet dog. That's important in a working dog. Yeah. So you've got to know the market that you're breeding for too. That's right. And yeah. train the dog to that. Yeah, that's right. And develop those dogs for your end user. And that's why, um, you know, to talk about Sam Again, like he's obviously has good genetics, but that's been his thing right from the start is the development of the puppies. But he and switches them on too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And puts, he works on the epigenetics. Yeah, and mm. sh- yeah, that's right. Flicks the mm. switch on the genes that are that are there. Yeah, would yeah. let just letting them lay lay dormant. And and for your pet breeders should be doing the exact same thing. Whether it is developing them for like a food drive or whatever, that's not you know, whatever they're developing for, but they should be exposing them. Like if they're going to be dogs that are going to live in the home, they need to be whelped in the home, mm. right? They can't be whelped in a kennel somewhere. And then the first time they're in they're they're under a roof is when you take that dog home. Like that's a problem. You yep. should be developing dogs. Exactly. As you say, developing dogs for the market that they'll go to. Yep. And I can talk a big game about this because I've never done it. So <laughs> like I can, I can. Nor like, have I, like, but I've, I've been on the other side of the fence. Yeah, I've that's right. Dogs expecting that's right. And I've bought a lot of dogs. horse breeding too. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm. And a fair bit, yeah. Like yeah. I've bought a lot of dogs because I bought my own, but then I also sourced them for people, right? Yeah. And so like I, I've i been at the pointy end quite a bit and you can it just infuriates me when people spend all of this time, effort, energy getting the genetics right and then do none of the development. Yeah. It's, it's fucking insane to me. I, I don't understand it. More so in Victoria, not so much in New South Wales, but in Victoria, there was a, there was quite a lot of times that people were paying me to go around and look at, like pick their puppy from a litter for them. So they give me a list of criteria of what it was supposed to meet and I'd go around there and nine times out of ten, I'd go around there and go, oh, none of these. Mm. Like the, the people aren't doing the work. You know, and I had breeders threatening me and wanting to wring my neck over it. Like I'm talking, you know, grievous bodily harm threats because they take it so personally. But it, it wasn't a personal thing. It wasn't an attack against them. It's just that what the person wanted in a working role with these pups, it wasn't going to fulfill. You know, certainly not what I was seeing them at that age at that point in time. That you know, like you crumple up a roll of newspaper, they wouldn't chase after it. They run away from it. Yeah, they'd skitter around the room, and and people would say to me, "Oh, you know, you, you're not giving them enough time." And I said, "These pups are seven weeks of age. They should be enthusiastic. There should be an abundance of drive and curiosity in them." And I said, yeah. "When I came in the room, they all ran and hid under the the table, and it's taken them like five minutes to come peeking out at me." Yeah, you know, and I said, "These people have got children." You know, you can imagine what this is going to grow into as an, as an adult. When you do go around and you see it done right, you know, these puppies come leaping out at you. They're enthusiastic. They're diving all over the top of you. 
They can't wait to get involved. They follow you around. They're curious about noises. These are things that you, these are hallmark signatures that as a perspective buyer or owner of a, of a dog that you're going to spend the next 10 to 15 years with, these are things that you should take away from. Not saying, now here's an old breeder's trick, one that I really don't like, is they'll say to you, they'll have this pup that's a shutdown sort of puppy from the get-go, which is this shy little pup I was talking about before. This pup will be stuck with the breeder until it's 15 weeks of age and you know somebody will come straggling along looking you know they'll find the ad in the paper they're desperate for a puppy they go around there and they see this dog and they go oh how come this one is left behind and i'll go oh this is the special puppy this is the one that we were thinking about keeping you know but we just listening nick dalton (laughs) but they'll say you know this is the special pup the one that you know like we were going to keep it we can't do that now now in saying that, that that is legitimate sometimes. You know, we have had pups that we were going to keep before and it hasn't turned out to be a working, like it hasn't kicked off the genetics to be a working dog the way we want it to do. But we show it to people and we say, okay, now we were going to keep this pup, but it's not going to have the drives that we want as a working dog. So we're not going to keep it any longer. However, if you pay attention to this, the pup will follow you around everywhere. The dog has good food drive. So as a, as a working pet, it will be a good dog. As a working dog, it's not suitable to do that. So we try and make that very crystal clear to people. Now, even then, you can still get it wrong. The Superdog program in Lachlan Air Force Base, they did extensive work. And I mean, I've heard colleagues of Pat's and from the Army and um, government services where they've talked about, and especially on other podcasts where they've been raising puppies. And a lot of these guys will say, you know, I hate getting puppies because the the predictability rate of getting them from a puppy to a working dog, there's a lag in time where you just don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, you know, it's a genetics is a dice roll, correct. no matter what. Yes, it is. So these things have to be taken into account. You know, every single time that you're working with these dogs, but that breeder trick is essentially one that will try and make people feel that you know this dog was the lucky last dog. Mm. I was going to keep him, but. For an extra thousand, I'll I'll sell him exactly. To you. <laughs> so <laughs> again, it's one of those hurdles Ethics. that when you are looking at these dogs, you really need to be aware that sometimes that's just trickery. That's yeah. that you know that's people telling you a bullshit line to try and get rid of that pup. So the main thing is is and there's another old trick. Um, people are going to hate me for this. There's another old trick that people often give you the puppy to hold it, and when you hold it, you develop a bond with that puppy. You know, so that's what they'll do. They'll throw it into your arms and you'll you'll take the puppy and then you'll think, oh my God, now I need it because it loves me, you know, and it's connected with me. So some, t- I mean, look, I, I think touching puppies is, is, is good. Uh, and there's times where I would just say to people, I don't want you touching them now because they're too young. Um, but, y- you know, if they climb all over you and so forth, I don't like people picking puppies up and then dropping them and so forth. So Alice. Yeah, <laughs> Alice. So that's one of my bugbears especially when they bring their kids in to look at pups so what i say to everybody is sit on the ground let the pups climb all over you pat them you know get here's some toys throw them around or you know here's a flirt pole which is essentially a stick with a like a leather chamois on the end of it which is a like a leather rag 
play with this with the pups, but don't pick them up and drop them, you know? And even when I do teach people to pick them up when it's their first time taking them home, I show them where to place the hands, one under the chest and one at the rear of the dog and hug it into your body, you know, basically swaddle the pup in. So I said, they're going to kick, they're going to thrust, you know, and before you know it, you're going to have a puppy with broken up limbs that's going to be- They've um, got no self-preservation That's right. They'll dive out of your hands immediately. So all of these things, as a a responsible breeder, if you're going to place that pup into homes, you need to essentially set people up correctly from the get-go that when they do take the pup home, they're aware- Number one, you've got two weeks of hell coming. Mm-hmm. That pup's going to be I mean, ostracized <laughs> from its litter from the first time. It's going to be scratching, shitting, pissing, screaming the, the walls down. And even then, you'll need to go through an extinction process of teaching the pup that I don't give you attention for, for screaming. And that breaks people's heart. They want it. They hear the puppy crying. They think, no, I've got to go to the pup. They reset the behavior. And therefore, I get called, you know, what do I do about this? And that's, I mean, I don't want to sound unscrupulous, but I say to people, if you want me to fix this, this is the lesson. This is what it's cost you. I will give them advice and I do give them an extensive breeder handbook, which is another thing that you should be getting when you take puppies out as well, is a feeding guide and a raising guide and a temperament guide on on what to do to prepare your puppy. Because this very much is a handshake deal that needs to be abided by from the get-go. Mm-hmm. You're the breeder. You were responsible of getting that puppy up to eight weeks of age where it's going to leave your home and go into the family house. Now, the handshake is from eight weeks, especially to 16 weeks in that critical period, okay, this is their next eight weeks that they have to meet all the properties and guidelines of making sure that they give that dog mental and physical toughness to prepare that dog for the rest of its life because that's it. Once you blow that, if you don't do it and you take the pup home and, you know, get its vaccinations and then leave it until 16 weeks stuck in the backyard. Yeah. We've talked about this before, but that is essentially a massive problem that you're going to incur for the rest of the dog's life Mm -hmm. because it won't have that mental and physical toughness. It won't have that preparedness for the wide world. You know, and I'm not saying again, I've made this point exceptionally clearly. Don't take your puppy to dog parks where it gets nailed don't take your puppies to areas where there is the risk of pathogens, like areas where dogs are pissed and defecated all over the place. Think about those type of things. Yes, take your puppy down to Bunnings, okay? Let the pup sit off in the distance and increasingly take them over and expose them more and more and more. So incrementally expose them to these little... With a lot of positive reinforcement. Lots of positive reinforcement, but for the right thing too. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, positive reinforcement has to be for positive behaviour. You know, so it's behaviour that you actually want to reinforce. Never reinforce anything that you don't want as a permanent behaviour. So if your puppies are in an environment and they're showing curiosity and enthusiasm and wanting to look like if something goes crash and the puppy is enthusiastic and wants to go over and investigate it, Walk over there with the pup. Praise the pup while it's doing that. Any any positive, as I said before, any of it doesn't matter if you've got a Pekingese. It doesn't matter if you've got a Bichon Free. It doesn't matter if you've got a Rottweiler. They should still be started off with that same program. As much physical and mental toughness as you can prepare them for, this will give your dog mental and physical longevity for the rest of its life. You'll reduce um, stress on the nervous system. You'll reduce health issues down the track. I mean, the benefits like exceptionally outweigh the, mm. the cons of what we're talking about. It's the whole short-term pain for long-term gain. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think before we wrap up, one of the things we plugged in one hit time here or a couple of times here before, but the guy, Alex Hill, who I got Valerie from, right? Yeah. I didn't know him from a bar of soap and we decided we want to do this video series. 
on getting a puppy and I wanted to show what you should look at. And it was a total fluke that he just turned out to be this excellent breeder. Just his, the dog happened to be born to, to fit our time schedule, right? Yep. So just an example for people when you're dealing with a breeder, I said to him, I basically committed when, when they were born, I said, hey, I'm looking to get a puppy. I uh, told him the idea of it. At about the four-week mark, I said, hey, I'm going to be in Melbourne. I, I'm traveling down. Can I come and see the the puppies? And he's like, you're very welcome to, but here's where they're at at the moment. And instantly was able to send me a bunch of videos on his phone of like them reacting to him mowing the lawn just right next to their whelping kennel. And, and he could send me video of mum working and dad working. And then when I did go, of course, I, I did go. We rock up to his house and there he is, like there's mum's mum's in the whelping box, dad's in the yard there. Now, of course, people don't always have the mail around, but uh, he could show me them working. I yep. could see the conditions they were in. Perfect. Four weeks old, all yep. these puppies come stumbling over to me and want to lay all over. Like perfect scenario, yep. right? Yeah. But that's the, exactly what people should be looking for as a breeder that's like, of course, like I can provide, if you don't want to travel, here's the evidence, like I've got it available because- Video they, it. They should expect that people are going to want to see that shit. So, of course, mm. they're filming it, right? And or these educating days, people who don't know that this yeah. is what should be done. Yeah, exactly, right? And these days, everybody can film that shit on their phone and send it to you in a heartbeat. If they're like, oh, I'll try and get some footage, run. Because it's like the, everybody can get footage easily, okay? Yeah. And then the same thing. Yeah, come over. Like, I would love to show you. I'm proud of what I have going on here. I would love to show it to you. Can I interject there for a second? Of course. A buyer of mine wanted to wanted me to actually test the pups. Like they were saying, can you show me the footage of the dogs reacting to sound, like banging a, a stick on a table or a bit of tin or anything like that? So I said, absolutely. Now, one thing that I will say is when we did do the footage, I got someone to hold the camera while I was in the room with the pups. So it didn't look staged or you were, you know, like you were seeing half a roof and half a, a floor with some puppies running around while there was a bit of noise carrying on. What I did was I stood in one corner, the puppies were in another corner playing. I went in there and I started wailing on the wall with a bit of stick. And when I did that, the pups left what they were doing. They all came running over, wanted to jump on me, wanted to get the stick. So I showed it to the buyer and he said, perfect. I like this one and this one with these color collars. So we have color ID collars to identify who they are and mm-hmm. keep track of their weights, et cetera, et cetera, which is part of your responsibility. And he said, I like this one, this one. What would you recommend? And I said, tell me what your need fulfillment is he explained it to me and i said this one for sure Mm -hmm. and i said i'll keep an eye on uh, over the next week in case any changes And i said but this one's been consistent in that behavior so again going back on pat's point before make sure that if you can't get there physically and you are seeing video make sure it's clear descriptive video of what you can see and don't be afraid to ask for an update on that as well i mean with iphone technology or whatever phone you're using with that technology, you can do that in seconds. Yeah, that's right. You know, this is not hard work where you need to get a camera out and edit gear or anything like that. In fact, it shouldn't be edited. And this was literally happening. You can FaceTime this shit as well. You know, you can be speaking to the person, walk out in the shed and you can show it to them. If you've got Wi-Fi or 3G coverage in your area, there's no excuse for not making that happen. If you don't want to make it happen, you're hiding something. Yeah. Okay. Well, you might be busy on the day that somebody asks, but then certainly make a time where you can say okay well look tomorrow i can do it between these hours if you're available you know i can do a five minute video on showing you the the mother and the pups and what's going on make it happen let your buyers see what's actually going on yeah provide them with as much information as possible because like i said this is a 10 to 15 year investment you want to try and get it as close as you possibly can 
on top of that, I always say to people they were doing with the Superdog program, there's no guarantees. Yeah. You know, that's what the Superdog program established is that even though you can have these genetics and you can have all these great intentions, Mother Nature can twist and warp things to suit herself. Mm-hmm. Like we're talking about recessives. We're talking about epigenetics. We're talking about a lot of things that will affect the outcome of what you're actually going to produce. And the reality is that's just how it is. Yeah. So do the best you can. Well, Every dog has a bandwidth of capability and the breeders and your job as a trainer is to get it to the top of that bandwidth of capability. But some dogs absolute peak of capability is barely scratching the surface of another dog's. Yep. That's just the truth. All right. So I think we should wrap it up on that. And what, before we do go, Jeff, tell us how people can find you and a little bit of information about your whelping box. Yeah, sure. So we've got a uh, website, whelpmate.com. Visit that. Everything you kind of need to know is there. We ship worldwide. We are responsive to messages, phone calls, anything, any kind of advice or conversations you want to have. Um, Get in contact with us and we can sort you out. You are absolutely instrumental in helping me out. I had several phone calls with Jeff before I decided to go with him and he never, never missed a beat. Anytime I needed to know something... How many phone calls do we have? About a dozen? Oh, yeah, there were a few. Yeah, and they were they were <laughs> Oh, long co- needy, Glenn. <laughs> so needy. Oh, that's what it's about. You that, know, like it's – I find some of the breeders that we've associated with are a little bit slow on the uptake for new technology, mm-hmm. and that's not to have a go at them. They've done it before. Of it's course. been successful. Why would they change? Yeah. It's not about being successful or making their pups better. It's about making it a lot easier for them, a lot quicker, a lot simpler. Mm. Um, it, at the end of the day, a box is a box what that box does within that eight-week period that is going to make it a lot simpler for the breeder. Yeah. Well, I actually saw – I originally saw your your product uh, on Suzette's webpage. Yep. She does all the oh, – um, She's been great, yeah. Yeah, Suzette Turner. She does all the – what's her ABKA or something like ABKC, that? ABKC, yeah. ABKC, yeah. So she's, um, she's been instrumental in the Bull Breed Association. And they've got shows and events on around New South Wales, around, and I mean, she's bringing people in around the world. So I saw it. She's been a friend of mine for twenty years. I saw it on her her Facebook page. Yep. And I thought, what's that? And I contacted her, and she said, "Oh, you've got to speak to Jeff." And when I first looked at the website, I thought, "Ah, oh, this looks a bit gimmicky." You know, it looks a bit clunky and then when I spoke to you and you were kind enough to spend several hours chatting to me and give me <laughs> the rundown of what was going on and yep. and then we organized to get one over here and and have a look at it in and how it actually structured and how you could have the two boxes that were connected so you the can have a welping together yeah yeah a boxing a box for whelping and a box that the pups could jump over and have a playgroup box that you could shut it all down clean the other one it's absolutely fantastic it really yeah. is it's I, I think it's a, an evolution in whelping boxes so personally I couldn't recommend it highly enough um, I'm really grateful that you that you did give me that time and, and gave me access to a box to use and I wouldn't recommend anything that I didn't like or, or as I told you, you know, there was, there's absolutely no way I'd put my name to something I, I thought wasn't working and this absolute, it worked better than I expected it to. So oh, thanks for that. Thanks Glenn. mate. No, thank you. You made a hard job quite easy. So well, that's um, the point of it. And you know, you can get crush rails for these boxes and accessories and all sorts of things. So yeah, get on to Weltmate and have a look. As said, if you need to call Jeff, give him a call. He's very easy to deal with a uh, lovely guy and very helpful and thumbs up, mate. Cheers, Glenn. Thank you. Thank Mm. you so much for having me on. Welcome. All right. Well, that's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, like, rate, share, subscribe, tell a friend even. 
If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is via Patreon. Three bucks a month gets you access to an extra episode a month. Ten bucks gets you a live Q&A. But, you know, if you feel generous, go crazy. Give as much as you like. <laughs> and if you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is via email. We are info at thecanineparadigm.com. Just be kind to us, all right? Sometimes it takes us a while to get back to people. Sometimes I'll read a message and not reply because it's for Glenn and then he doesn't see it. So just, just fucking settle down. Right? <laughs> That's it. Glenn, music. Music.